Welcome to the Empowered to Connect podcast, where we come together to discuss a healing-centered approach to engagement and well-being for ourselves, our families, and our communities. I'm J.D. Wilson, and I am your host. And today on the show, it's Martin Luther King Day. And uh, in light of all that this day represents, we thought we would bring back to you uh, our second episode ever. Uh, it was our first episode with a guest, and it was... Uh, a dear friend of ours um, here in Memphis, who is, uh, amongst lots of other things, uh, a very accomplished uh, author, professor, uh, civil rights historian, um, and uh, overall kind and generous, brilliant, um, brilliant, brilliant man, uh, Dr. Charles McKinney. And uh, Dr. McKinney joined us to talk, amongst a lot of other things, about the moment we were witnessing um, happening in our country. In fact, uh, the day or two before uh, we recorded the episode was the day that George Floyd was killed um, by a police officer and uh, the country began to, again, cycle through uh, everything from riots to uh, conversations to uh, fractured relationships to change to uh, division to, uh, you know, the rest of the story. So uh, we talked to Dr. McKinney about lots of different things, but particularly about how we got here to this place where we are so divided, so uh, broken apart culturally and ethnically. Uh, and then uh, knowing that a lot of our audience, a lot of our listeners were uh, not just uh, people of a majority culture background, but also those who had um, interactions with uh, either through foster care or adoption, um, transracial relationships in their lives. Um, Doc gives us some advice toward the end uh, to that to that direction. Uh, it is just a a great great episode for those of us who uh, live amongst people who are not exactly like us, which is all of us. So please enjoy today uh, this special episode, a throwback to our second episode ever with the one and only Dr. Charles McKinney. All right, well, our guest today is the Neville Frierson, Brian, you know, I should have asked you if Frierson is the correct pronunciation first. Sure. Frierson? Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> Now I don't know if you're messing with me or not. The Neville Frierson Bryan Chair of Africana Studies and Associate Professor of History at Rhodes College is Dr. Charles McKinney. Um, and uh, Doc, you're also the author of two books and contributor to 15, 20,000 others, it seems <laughs> like. <laughs> um, but we wanted to have you on today um, for a myriad of reasons. But uh, one, as we are in an unprecedented time of discussion um, right now, um, particularly around as, as it pertains to race and um, and for our audience, parenting, um, we have a lot of people who are for the first time in their foray into this conversation, uh, both with their kids, with other families, with their communities. And so, I uh, wanted to have you on today. So, if you wouldn't mind, before we dive into that topic, would you just kind of give a, a brief background on who you are and uh, and kind of where you're from? Sure. Um, first off, always always good to break bread with you brothers. Always good to break bread here at Fellowship. Um, thank you for uh, having me on. I really appreciate it. So, all right, me, really quickly. Um, I grew up in Southern California, Santa Barbara, California. Um, uh, a very, an overwhelmingly uh, white space, um, heavy Latinx population, very small African-American population. 
um, in the house of Charles and Lil McKinney, my two parents from um, Arkansas, both born in the Jim Crow South in the 1930s. So I grew up in California with my little sister, um, went off to college in Atlanta, Georgia, at the Morehouse College, and then came back to Los Angeles for a year, taught elementary school, um, and then went off to graduate school at Duke University, go Blue Devils, <laughs> and, um, and then uh, lucked up and fell in love with uh, Natalie Davis. We got married in 96 um, and uh, moved to, um, I'll speed up here, moved to Memphis in 2005. Right. So I am the father of three. I've got a daughter, Vanessa Marie, um, and two sons, um, Io and Chioke. And the two boys are in the house and they both need to get jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, uh, as we were talking before, uh, before the, the record button was hit today, um, one of the things we talked about is obviously uh, to understand the, the background of this discussion, we got to go back 400 years um, to when uh, African people were first brought to America. Uh, and, and so I guess our question to you before was, why don't we just let you share what you want to share with us? And, uh, but would you mind setting the table for, uh, for what we're seeing now and kind of the, the history that has, that has set the foundation for this time in history to be what it is. Sure, um, and I'll do it really, I'll do it really quickly. Um, and I'll start off with this. Uh, every year we celebrate July 4th, right? Every year. Um, and why do we do that? We do that because we're celebrating um, a legacy. Uh, we're celebrating a legacy of, of freedom, a legacy that was sort of crystallized in the 1700s um, and that we still lay claim to right now, right? Literally like right now, right? So we honor and recognize um, the power of that legacy and the power of that history. And we honor and recognize the, the values that we espoused in the 1770s. So then, so where I go from there then is um, when it comes to race relations in this country, we also have to honor um, and recognize the values and the dynamics that we constructed at that same time, right? And so what I talk about in my classes is the simultaneous construction of freedom and unfreedom, right? Just as we were creating, at the exact same time we were creating a legacy of, of liberty and justice. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal. Notice that, men, right? Um, we were also creating a legacy of slavery, a legacy of racial subordination. Right, so if we don't believe that we, you know, that, that our legacy of freedom, right, well, I'll back up, we don't believe our legacy of freedom sort of petered out at some point, mm. right? We believe that that's still here. We believe that it's still vibrant, that it's still with us, yeah. that we build on it day in and day out. Well, I hate to tell you, <laughs> right, this other legacy, we did the same thing, right? We constructed unfreedom the same way we constructed freedom. We built a set of values we built a set of ideas about racial inequality, right? And we wove those ideas into the fabric of the nation, right? So our, so our, our constitution that we love, right, um, sanctifies the ownership of other people, mm. right? Um, and, the, and, it get, and it really gets tricky when you start to think about it. And I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, we're not going to get lost in the weeds here, right? But one of the things that we can think about in this was that, in the 1700s, one of the things we said is, you know, um, free people have the right to own things. Free people have the right to own property. 
In the 1700s, people were property, right? So an expression of freedom for one group of people meant the literal enslavement of another group of people, right? So, you know, so, so, you know if you could buy somebody in the 1770s, right, that was an articulation, that was an expression of your freedom. You could buy a table, you could buy a house, you could buy a horse, you could buy a farm, you could buy a 13-year-old girl. You could buy a 10-year-old boy. You could buy a 40-year-old man or woman to work for you for free for the rest of their natural lives. That was also an expression of freedom, right? So that's how woven together these two things are, right? So just as we had an investment in freedom, we also had an investment in unfreedom. We had an investment in racial subordination so that, right, the institution of slavery could grow and flourish and thrive from, right, from 1619, which is a hundred and, you know, 150 years before this founding moment, yeah. right, all the way up to, right, uh, the 1860s. So, you know, so when it comes to the, when it comes to this moment, right, what we're seeing is, all right, what we're being reminded of is this simultaneous construction of freedom and unfreedom. We are, we are, we are living in a moment where, um, where technically all people should have rights, the e equal rights, right? Yeah. And should have access to all of the rights and privileges that every other, every other American has rights and access to. And we don't have that because of this legacy that we've created. We're still fighting. We've made some progress, obviously, in, in a lot of really foundational and fundamental ways but we still have a long way to go. Um, and so this moment is a reminder of, of those disparities, right? And so, you know, so when, we, and so when we start to think about this moment, we have to be honest with ourselves and honest with our kids, right, about the history and about the legacy and about what it is we're actually struggling against in this moment. So you said um, something that at the end there that, that I want us to talk more about. When we talk about having this conversation with our kids, um, you mentioned before we start recording, it often starts, we want to start personally, but that might not be the luxury that we have in this discussion to have it the best way. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, my daughter is, is older and... Um, and, uh, and she has a job, so I like her the best out of all three of my children. <laughs> um, and uh, so my two boys are in the house now. And so one of the things that I, yeah, it, one of the things I think about is what do, we tell our, what do we tell our young people? What do we tell our kids in these moments? And, you know, our first inclination as a parent is we want to just, you know, as, a, as an African-American father to three African-American kids... You know, I, I just I just want to hug him up, and you're like, you can't leave the house. We're just, yeah. you know, we have a strong internet connection. We'll just play games, and mm -hmm. we'll just be here until you're in your 40s, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, and and then maybe I'll then maybe we'll talk about you leaving the house, right? Yeah. I am, um, I am literally uh, terrified every time my my sons leave the house, mm -hmm. right? So so the inclination, which is powerful in this moment, is to is to pour into our children about about their value and their worth, um, about how they are children of God, they are beautifully and wonderfully made, um, and to talk to them about how, you know, um, how this moment is not a reflection on them. And if I'm not careful, right, that will be, you know, there'll be a period after that declaration, mm -hmm. right, about 
their worth and their value in, 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 in our society and about how, about how awesome they are, right? And yeah. about how great they are and how they are loved and things like that. But then the historian in me kicks in, right? Um, and the thing that I know about um, the long reach of African-American history was that, you know, these are the words that came out of the mouths of parents during slavery, yeah. right? These are the words that came out of the mouths of parents in the 1660s, in the 1760s, right? In the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, and 60s, right? And so, mm. you know, so imagine, you know, imagine our fear now. Well, let's go back 200 years. Let's go back to the 1820s, and you're talking to your son or your daughter, and you don't know whether or not they will be sold away from you or whether or not you will be sold away from them. Those parents were, get, were, were saying the same things to their kids, right? You are wonderfully and fearfully and beautifully made. You are a child of God. You are, um, you are, you are loved. You are part of a community. But at the end of the day, right, um, those parents did not have the power to save their children because they lived in an institution. They lived in a slave society, right? So the other thing, so if you, and so if that, you know, if, if that hypothetical parent in the 1820s had simply stopped at, hey, you know what? You're an awesome kid. I love you and you are loved. If they had simply stopped there, that would not have been enough, Yeah. right? They have to keep going. And they have to say, now we have to talk about the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Now we have to talk about the reality of slavery. Now we have to talk about the fact that, you know what? I don't know whether or not you will be here tomorrow wow. or I will be here tomorrow. Yeah. And it's a disservice to you if I let you, you know, run around, if you're a young person, if I let you run around and not tell you about that yeah. and not tell you about and not be honest with you about the society in which you live. Right. So back up to 2020, I have to be, you know, and, 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 and I, you know, and my wife and I, we are of one accord of this, right? My African-American wife, we're like, look, we have to be honest with yeah. our kids about the society in which they live. Right. Because so much of this is going to be out of their control. Right. In terms of, you know what, at the end of the day, your niceness the fact that your parents are educated, the fact that you live in, are, you live in a, a comfortable middle-class home, none of that matters in very particular instances once you leave the house, yeah. right? And so when you bump into those instances, those instances are not about you, right? Those instances are about the society in which we live and the choices that individuals are making in the context of that larger society, right? So I have an obligation to tell you about this society and how this society operates, for good and for ill, right? And if I don't do that, then I'm doing a disservice to you because you should not come home surprised. You can come home hurt, right? You can come home offended. You can come home wounded. You can come home mad because humans will be humans, yeah. right? And you will always, there will always be somebody out there that's going to say something or do something. Right. So you can come home choking back tears. That's not yeah. what I'm, I'm not telling you to, to not do that, yeah. right? But at the end of the day, I don't want you, you know, I don't want you coming home and be like, I don't understand why this person could do this to me. I want you to understand that, Wow. right? I mean, this is literally like, um, you know, we, when we raise girls, we tell our girls that, you know, there are people out there that will harass you, that will malign you, that will, you know, that you'll get catcalled. You, you know, you'll get, you know, there will be some random dudes who will say some, you know, inappropriate things to you. Yeah. Right? 
that's part of that's part of life. Yeah. So you know, so that I'm not doing any service to my I'm not doing a service to my daughter by not telling her that that's gonna happen when she leaves the house, right? You know, I don't want to put my daughter in a position where she leaves the house and she's like, you know, people somebody said something really offensive. I don't understand why people would do that. Well, well, then that's not me doing my job. Yeah. <laughs> right? If you don't understand that. So so yeah, we have to be honest with our kids. Yeah. I'm thinking through just um adopted foster parents uh that have adopted her or fostering transracially. Um yeah, what is that? What does that conversation look like? Where does it begin? Where does, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, so I can only speak from, you know, being in community with, with friends who have, uh, with friends and, and relatives who have, you know, who have adopted um, transracially. And, and I know that, you know, this is, this is fraught for, for people, right? Um, and it should be fraught. You, you should be worried about these things, right? Yeah. You know, so if you are, so if you're, if you're a white couple and you have adopted um, a, a black child, right? You know, um, yeah, you should be thinking, my, my sense of it is that you should be thinking about this, you know, like from day one, right? right. Because, um, you, know, your, you, know, you know, your idea of, if you have this idea that, for instance, you know, you're going to teach your children that there's, you know, there aren't, races, there's just one race, there's just the human race, and, you know, if you're going to go down that road, um, then you're going to have to be prepared for some really serious blowback when your black child leaves the house and, um, and is confronted and is dealt with as a black person, right? Wow. Um, you know, you, you can't, I mean, that's a disservice to your, to your child, Right. I mean, you know, again, back to the gender, back to the gender analogy. Right. I mean, you know, I, we didn't we didn't tell our daughter, Vanessa, you know what? I, just, I don't see you know, we don't see gender in this house. So, you know what? I'm just you're just going to you're just a human being. So you just go out and just be just be human. Right. And then have her be surprised that people treated her like she was a girl. Right, right, right. Dad. Right. Someone called me a girl. I don't understand why they would do that. What? What's? What? I don't even know what that means. What? Well, sweetie, actually, maybe we should have a conversation. Right. right? You know, yeah. we don't do that. Right. We 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 don't do that. And so we have to, um, because again, you know, when we think, when we go back to this idea that, um, we have to be careful, right? And we have to be careful in terms of making the distinction between the things that we can control and the things that we can't, right? And we also have to be, again, we have to be honest about the society in which we, in which we live, right? Um, and so, you know, for, for the trans, you know, for the, for the transracial adoptions, um, for folks who've adopted non-white kids, you have to be, you have to take an honest assessment of this, of your society. And it's, again, you know, I'm not suggesting that, you know, every, every day of your kid's life is going to be like a race war, <laughs> right. right? That's not the, that's not the suggestion here. You know, although you do have to be, you know, you do have to be mindful about how this plays out for kids. You know, that, that depends on where you live, right? That depends on where your kid's going to school. That depends on, you know, the, 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 the groups of other kids that your kids are playing with, right? Depends on, all, you know, all these other things are going to kick into that. So, you know, I'm thinking about one family that, um, you know, was really mindful of these, was really mindful of these dynamics and they sort of shifted, 
you know, they shifted their lifestyle to accommodate the fact that they had black children, right? Yeah. So, you know, so their black kids grew up in an environment where they weren't the only black kid, yeah. right? They grew up in an environment where, you know, their friend group was, you know, their friend group was racially, you know, was, was, was racially diverse. Their, you know, their church life, right? They left, you know, they left their, you know, lily white church and they, they found a multicultural church, right? They're yeah. like, look, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to keep this in mind, right? So that, um, so, so that, you know, their, their kids got both messages, right? That, you know, that you were loved by us, but we also know and understand that, you know, that this is something that we do not share, Right, we do not share. Um, you all are black. We are not. Yeah. Right. But we're not going to raise you as if you are not black. Right. As if that does not mean anything. Would we like that not to mean anything? That would be, on some level, sure. That would be great. But that's not the place in which. That's not where we live. Right. And so this moment where we are right now is a searing and tragic reminder of the fact that that's not where we live. Yeah. 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 I want to go back to history for a moment. Um, we saw in the late 60s a series of, um, not unlike today, riots, moments, Dr. King's assassinated, and there, there was both a, a greater division drawn and then a big surge and push for rights. When we look at post-1968 until now, what, what are some of the mistakes that were made uh, societally that we can be looking at now and being mindful that we don't repeat history in a negative way when there is a moment where we can affect change in the world? Sure. I think, um, so I think we have, to, we have to be mindful of why we saw what we saw in the late 60s, right? Um, you know, starting in the early 60s, we tend to, um, we tend to sort of gloss over the violence that we saw in the early 60s, right? We, t we, we, we tend to talk about that in a very different way, which is something that we have to also sort of knock around, right? When we talk about the, when we talk about the riots and we talk about the violence we see in, in, in cities, in urban centers and urban cities, for some reason we have made a distinction between that and the violence we saw in Birmingham, right? The violence we saw in Selma, the violence we see in, you know, the nonviolent phase of the civil rights movement, right? Yeah. These people are met with brutal acts of violence, right? Um, you know, in response to children marching in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963, racial terrorists blow up a church yeah. and kill four little girls. That's violence yeah. of the most vile sort, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so then we start to see these urban, these urban rebellions in 64 and 65, all through the, through the 60s. And that is a function of outright, you know, rage and frustration, um, anger at the, for what many people perceive as the slow pace of, of, of change, right? Because we have to remember, um, black folk got free in 1865, right? So they're, 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 they are, you know, and so black folks have created a movement to get to secure the rights that they were supposed to have 100 years earlier. Right? That's the thing that we, we tend to forget when we, when we talk about the civil rights movement. Right? This is a century-long conversation. Yeah. Right? Black folk got free in 1865, get, you know, become citizens, um, and get the right to vote in the late 1860s, early, 19, early uh, you know, late, 18, you know, late 1860s, early 1870s. So again, we're talking about a century worth of 
Um, and then their rights are taken away from them because of, by way of racial terror. You know, reconstruction comes and goes. So it's an ebb and flow, right? There's progress and then there is white violence and white rage and white resistance to that progress, yeah. right? So black folk get the right to vote, start building institutions, start you know, um, building and creating their own families. They start doing all of the things that our society says people should do, yeah. right? And they are met with resistance, mm. right? Um, and, 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 and violence. They start to engage in all of the things that people do as they try to move into the mainstream of American life. And the answer is, don't do that. So the rights are stripped away. We go into the Jim Crow period, the period of racial segregation, right? Racial separation, racial apartheid in the, in the country. And so when we get back into the 1950s and 60s, right, people again are fighting for rights that they were supposed to have access to a century earlier. So we start to see some major shifts. We start to see legislation. We see Brown v. Board of Education. We see the Civil Rights Act. We see the Voting Rights Act. We see um, um, legislation on um, housing discrimination. Right? We see some major accomplishments, but it's not enough because we also start to see the pushback. Right? We see the legislation being implemented, but at the same time, we don't see those rights and benefits trickling down in, in the way, in, 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 for a lot of people, those rights and benefits don't trickle down fast enough, wow. right? So what we see in that period after that, right, is again a period of, of pushback, right, where this legislation is passed, there's lots of really great and wonderful things implemented. Affirmative action is implemented. Um, we start to see um, rising rates of black folks going to college, you know, black folks entering into, into professional schools, more, you know, an uptick in, you know, black home ownership and things of this nature. So there is some movement, there is some forward movement, but there's also, right, a pushback, which starts from the office of the White House, right, is, is you know, is echoed in the Supreme Court and is echoed in Congress, right, where we start to see legislation being chipped away at, not being implemented. So we go from the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, again, to a period, a really mixed period, a period of, of, of progress, but also a period where um, that progress becomes harder and harder to accomplish, harder and harder to achieve, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, and in the area of police, police brutality and police conduct, we, we, you know, we, we don't see, you know, the progress is negligible, right, I would say, right? So, um, so, and this is one of those areas that has been, you know, really, really difficult to counter, really, really difficult to confront, and it's really hard to do. And so, again, that's why, you know, we, that's why we're here, right? You know, it's the yeah. best of times, it's the worst of times. Man. Well, I would like to talk for the next 30 hours or so about all of this, um, but we do have to wrap up at some point. So, thinking, thinking for parents now, who are parenting in this uh, environment. Um, any advice for ways that we're not going to miss the moment with our kids and that, that uh, when our kids are sitting at these tables 20, 30 years down the road, they can look back and see, mom and dad prepared me well for this by doing, by having these conversations now or doing this. Are there, are there resources you would point toward or uh, starting points for people as they, as they begin this discussion uh, with their kids to prepare their children to walk well so they're not surprised when they, when they come home? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, for all of, for the parents right now, I think it's really important, you know, we got a model for our kids, right? We got a model for them, the behavior that we want to see. And so I get a lot of requests from people about, 
you know, what books should I read and, you know, what should I, what should I read and stuff. And I, you know, um, I, you know, I have a couple of, I always have a couple in my pocket, right? You know, if you're, if you're new to this, you need to read James Baldwin's Fire Next Time, right? Okay. Um, you need to read ta Coates' Between the World and Me. Um, you, need to, you need to Google. Um, Google is your friend, yeah. <laughs> right? You know, you need to go and, you know, you, you need to go out and find the resources that you can find, and you can do that, right? You know, I had a friend of mine say once, folks can Google how to eat gluten-free in Romania, right? <laughs> and, you know, and Google the, you know, Google to find out the, you know, mating habits of the great speckled cormorant, but can't Google institutional, but can't, can't Google institutional racism, right? There was like, you know, you, you Googled, you, you got the batting average of your, you know, you got the batting average of Ted Williams' second year in the league. You can, you can find some, you can find some stuff about black people. I have faith in your Google. I have faith in your Google skills. You can work that out. Um, but I think that just in terms of the modeling, though, right, um, you know, the book club's not enough, yeah. right? So the parents out there, who, you know, who've adopted transracially, um, I would say to you lovingly, right, that it's not enough for you to create a book club. You know, I just put this up on my Facebook page a little while ago. I was like, and the analogy is in my mind, you know, you know how, how comforted would you feel if after the hurricane has destroyed your home, I come up to you and said, you know what I did? I put together a book club on hurricanes. And we're going to read about hurricanes. And, you know, we just want you to know we're with you. We're just, you know, we, we have, we're going to read these books on hurricanes. We're going to know everything there is to know about hurricanes. How comforted are you by the fact that I know more about hurricanes now? Yeah, right. That's not, yeah. that's, that's preliminary work. Yeah. Right? That's the work you do. That's, the, that's your preparation. Yeah. That's your prep work in order for you to then walk in a very particular way and model for your kids. So the question becomes, okay, what am I going to do to fix the situation, to address the situation in which we find ourselves, right? Wow. You know, so this, this is not, right, this isn't, this, this isn't Harry Potter. This is not about, you know, there's unknown dark magical forces out there that are responsible for why we're here. Right. We're here for very specific reasons. Yeah. You have to understand and know and honor those reasons and then figure out, okay, how do I plug in to address these problems? Whether it's at my kid's school, whether it's in the larger community, what, what work am I going to do? Right, because again, I you know I heard somewhere this Jewish carpenter from a little while ago, right, <laughs> said something about you know said something about faith, you know one of his disciples said something about faith and work, yeah. <laughs> right, you know um, you know so you know there's you just you can't have one without the other, right, you know one without the other is that's one of them just dead, right, right. so right. you know so then okay then you have that gospel kick in, and say what do I need to do. What do we need to do collectively if we want this place to be better for our children? What are we doing right now yeah. to make it better for our children? That's what they will see. Mm. They're not going to see, they might see what you read. And hey, dad, what are you reading? Hey, mom, what are you reading? But right. they're going to see what you do, right? James Baldwin's got this quote. He says, I don't trust, and he's, he's, he's talking in the, in the middle of the 1960s and about how little, you know, how, how little he trusts, right, you know, white folks talking to him about racial change. And he was like, look, I don't trust what you say because I see what you do. Mm. Ooh. Right? I don't trust what you say because I see what you do. Wow. So, you know, so, so best case scenario, 
right? If your kids are little now, 30 years from now, your kids are out doing some good work because they saw you do some good work, yeah. right? So that's how you know it's working, yeah. right? That's how you know that, um, that you've done this, that you've done this correctly because they've, because they've engaged in what King called the beautiful struggle to make a new world. Wow, 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 wow. Uh, before we go, anything else you want us to know? Anything else you think we need to know? You've got the floor. <laughs> well, <laughs> sit back and get comfortable. <laughs> I've got a really quick list of these 117 things I wanted to say really, 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 really quickly. Um, you know, this is, again, this is a, a moment where we are fraught. And we have to be honest about why we're here. We have to be honest about what's happened. Um, we have to be honest with our kids about the reality of racial inequality, mm -hmm. that this is not a function of bad people, right? Um, it's bigger than that, yeah. right? You know, as we were talking a little earlier, um, you know, our inclination um, in, you know, our inclination in so many of our churches is to think about this um, on some level as, as, as a relational issue. And on some level it is, right? On some level, some of this can be mitigated by, you know, people coming into community with one another. Right. On another level, that's not going to help at all, right? Um, who did Breonna Taylor need to be in community with yeah. so that she didn't get shot to death in her own bed? Wow. Right? Who did um, Ahmaud Aubrey need to be in community with so that he didn't get gunned down while he was jogging? Right. Right? Um, you know, so, so we have to be honest about this situation, about where we are so that we can figure out a way to move, to move forward. So that's not about, again, those instances, that's not about, you know, bad people doing bad things. That's the entryway into these, to these larger conversations we need to have about systemic inequality. Um, the most chilling thing about that George Floyd video is the impunity with, with which that officer um, has his knee on his neck. Yes. He's got his hand in his pocket. And it's, it's casual because he's under the impression that nothing's going to happen to him, mm -hmm. right? Why does he believe that? Because he works in an, inst in an organization. He's a part of a system that since the founding of the nation has systematically devalued non-white people. That's why, yeah. right? Why does it take three district attorneys to finally find the one to say, you know what, maybe the guys who murdered Ahmaud Aubrey should get arrested. Yeah. Because everybody in there felt a sense of impunity. Everybody in this scenario thought that, you know what, this isn't really that bad. Well, why isn't it that bad? Right? Would you have the same reaction if it was a 16-year-old white girl jogging down the street? Probably not. So yeah. why is this not that bad? Well, because this is a black man. That's why. Yeah. Right. So, so the parting, so the parting shot is, we have to be, we have to be honest with ourselves and with our kids about um, about this moment, so that we can empower them to to be their full to be their full selves and understand what's theirs and what's not theirs. That's the thing. Right. Is you know what, kids. Um, no matter what happens to you out there. Because the, again, that personal part of this is really important, right? You know what, you are beautifully and wonderfully made. You are loved, right? We think you are awesome. And 
you're going to bump into some people who don't think those things simply because of the way you look, simply because of the race of your, because of your race. Yeah. Those people are operating within a system. There are, there are a few bad apples, but at the end of the day, it's not the bad. They're bad apples because they're, they exist in a system that allows them to be bad. In some instances, encourages them to act wow. in these ways, yeah. right? Yeah. So we have to know that so then we can figure out what we're going to do, what we're going to do about it. Doc, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming on today. Tell us where we can find you, where we can read your stuff, uh, where we can follow you online, et cetera. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I'm on, um, I'm on Twitter, and I think I'm Charles McKinn, too. I think that's right. And then, uh, yeah, that's it. That's that's, <laughs> that's, <laughs> we'll that's, link that's in the it. Show notes. Yeah, cool. Oh. Um, and for those of you who live in in Memphis, um, a book that I edited with um, my friend and colleague Aram Gudsuzian is called "An Unseen Light: Black Struggles for Freedom in Memphis, Tennessee." So, um, for you Memphians out there, um, you should pick that up. Um, you should pick up at least four or five copies because, <laughs> as I mentioned earlier, I've got two children with no jobs. So daddy needs all that money for bread and eggs and milk. Well, so, and yeah. for that matter, folks outside of Memphis can pick up Greater Freedom, right? Yes, and that's right. Wilson, North yeah, Carolina. The Evolution of the Civil Rights Struggle in Wilson, North Carolina. Another brilliant, brilliant book. But um, yeah, so there's lots of, there's lots of really good stuff out there, to, out, there, out there to read. Hopefully I've contributed a couple of things. But um, yeah, keep keep reading, but also understand and remember that's your preliminary work, that's your warm up. Yeah, Dr. McKinney, thank you. I mean, Always I've, a pleasure. I've, I've said it many times. You have you have been an unbelievable resource, friend, and mentor. So thank really you. appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having thanks. me on, y'all. Well, I, I will say, uh, much like I did in the very first outro that we recorded for this episode, uh, the idea that Dr. McKinney shares with us that uh, those of us who are transracial adoptive parents need to be prepared for the fact that the world will view our children as they appear to them, not with a bio listed above their head of who their parents are or their stories or anything else. Um, that truth has been uh, a cornerstone in the way that at least I will say the Wilson family um, has moved and operated and um, had conversations with uh, both our children and our families, um, extended families in particular. And uh, I'll, I'll just tell you, it's a vital, vital line of thinking if you are a transracial adoptive parent or caregiver of any kind um, and one that uh, we, we do need to uh, think very, very um, carefully about. So a, a huge, huge thank you, Dr. McKinney. Um, we are excited to have him on again very soon, uh, as at least the plan is. And so uh, thank you for listening today. Thank you for subscribing to the podcast. Um, we are uh, going to be back next week with brand new episodes. And uh, this, this spring, uh, you are not going to want to miss some of the conversations we're going to have. Um, we are going to be stepping in some very uh, deep, sticky conversations. And, um, and we're excited to do so with some of the best um, and brightest in this field. And so uh, for Mo and Tana Ottinger, for everybody here at the ETC uh, team, I am J.D. Wilson, and we will catch you next week on the Empowered to Connect podcast. Thank you.